Hey there, it's so great to have you here with us today. One Chapel is a family of neighborhood churches in Kyle, and we help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. You can learn more about the things God is doing in this community and how to get involved at onechapel.com. I hope you enjoy this week's message from our Who Am I series. Yes or no? I'm so happy about that. Um, man, I, I, well, today we're going to start this new series. It's kind of a new journey for us, and it's in this series we're calling Who Am I? And over the next several weeks, we're going to ask that question. Who am I? <laughs> Who am I really? I don't know if... You're like me, but as I've hit my 40s, I begin asking more, oh, who am I? I thought I had it figured out, but I'm not sure I totally understand it. This is a question that I think we ask uh, often. And honestly, I don't, I don't know if, if we're really honest about how much we ask that question, because I think a lot of us are asking it all the time. Um, we may not even be aware that we're asking it, and the reality is that through life's ups and downs and struggles and even through the triumphs and successes, we're still often asking, who am I, and who am I really supposed to be? So today we're going to look at this question, who am I, and we're going to ask it in this way. Who am I when I feel like I don't measure up? Who am I when I'm dealing with measurement in my life? Because the reality is, is that all of us, we start being assessed and measured from the very beginning of our lives. If you're a parent, you know this, because when you have your first kid, even before you leave the hospital, there's all kinds of tests that they have to go through. They're taking all these tests. They're called, they're called APGAR tests. If you, if you, you remember that, parents? You remember those? APGAR tests. Let's see, what is it? It's, a, it's appearance, pulse, grimace, activity, and respiration. And so they're doing all these tests on your kid, and then they bring the kid back to you, and they, they bring them back into your room and give them to you, and you're kind of thinking, oh, so, so how'd they do? Like, did they do good? Like, they, they did awesome, didn't they? Did, did they beat everybody that's in the nursery today? Like, are they better than all those kids? They probably were, right? Because they're very advanced already. They're, I know they're a day old, but they're very advanced already, right? Come on, parents, you know what I'm talking about. You were there. They, he had the best grimace, didn't he? The best grimace response, right? Better grimace than anybody in the room, right? Right, right? Yeah. That's how we feel as parents. And then you take them to their first doctor's appointment, and they start doing all this statistical analysis on them, comparing them to the rest of the world. There's percentages that they're supposed to meet up. So they'll start saying, well, so you, your kid is in the 54th percentile in their weight, the 76th percentile in their height. Your kid is in the 99th percentile, and you're like, yes, 99, I knew it. It's, oh, well, in their head size. Still, they got that for me. It's awesome. Good job, boy. Like you're, you're proud of that thing. This actually is a reality for our family. This actually happened to us. Uh, my daughter, Aurora, sitting right here. Hi, babe. My daughter, Aurora, when she was born, the pediatrician had a couple concerns. And so she wasn't moving like she was supposed to, he thought, at the time. And so he sent us away to go do some testing. So we run away. You know, we're new parents. We're freaking out about this. So we run off to do some testing. We got to go get an MRI on her head. And so uh, they were saying her head was a little large. And so we had to, I had to take my little baby girl, give her over to the nurses. They sedate her. I'm watching her, like, try to fight off this sleep. And then we take her and stick her in an MRI machine. I'm standing there in this room, this massive monstrosity of a machine. And my little baby, my little tiny baby girl is in that machine. And I'm like, what is happening? What's going on? So they finish the test. They send the results over to this neurosurgeon. We go to the neurosurgeon about a week later, and we walk in, and Maria and I, were so we're scared. We don't know what's going to happen. What's, what, what is he going to say? Our, our, what's going on with our daughter, our baby girl? And he, he kind of looks at us and looks at the images, and he says, yeah, 
What she has is, and he rattles off this long line of medical terms. I have no idea what those were. I can't tell them to you today. And he could tell that Maria and I were both confused. And we were like, huh? And so he said, oh, yeah, what we call this is benign big head. She has a benign big head. She's just got a big head. That's all. And so we were like, uh, really, that's it? There's no problems? No, just, just a big head. And so she's actually grown into her head very nicely. So she did a perfect job, babe. But, 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 but so we went to a new pediatrician because we didn't like the old one. And so she measured her head. Oh, that is a big head. And then she said, you know what? Come here, Dad. And so I, I walked over to her, and she put the tape around my head and measured it and went, oh, yeah, she's just like you. You actually are off the charts for a male adult. You have a larger head than pretty much all of America. <laughs> Thank you so much. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. You've grown into yours. I'm stuck with this. <laughs> but we get measured like this, and then you go into the teen years, and you end up in middle school, and boy, those middle school years are tough. The assessments and the measurements and, and bodies are gangly and everything's weird and girls are tall and boys are small and, and they're talking and their voices are going, boo, and women are, or girls are going, oh, hey, boo, and they're dropping their voices. It's just a weird time of life and everybody's assessing. It's just, I wish we could just skip over those years. And then you go into high school and high school there's measuring and assessing. Do I have the right clothes? Do I have the right phone? Does my dad drive the right car? And not only are you being assessed and measured, but you're starting to measure and assess everybody else, including your parents. And then you get into the young adult years and you're being assessed there. Oh man, am I ever going to get married? I mean, I feel like people are just, they just, every time I see somebody, hey, when are you getting married? You found anybody? And like, leave me alone. I'm <laughs> I've been looking around the church, and I ain't found nobody worthy of this. <laughs> you know? Or, I don't want to get married, and everybody's putting this pressure on me. Is that what I have to do? And when, when am I going to be able to fulfill the calling that I feel like God has placed on my life? And, and it doesn't stop there, because as adults, not from just young adults, you grow into adulthood, and you're still doing it. There's a stat that I read the other day, and it was so interesting to me, because they said that, that men, men in America, they look at themselves 23 times per day. Women, women look at themselves about 16 times per day. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I mean, I, I grew up, I, had a, there's a, I have a sister in my house, and so growing up, and there was a lot of looking in the mirror. So at first, the stat seems like it's a little bit surprising, but it's really the next statistic that's really insightful, because women, when they look in the mirror, they tend to just see their flaws. They look in the mirror, and they say, oh, well, this is too big. Well, this is too small. Well, I don't like the curve of this. Well, I don't like the way this is. I don't like that. Right? And that's why they don't so much like looking into the mirror. They, try to, they tend to avoid the mirror. A guy can look in the mirror, and he looks, and he goes, yeah. There it is. You know, looking good. He's 50 pounds overweight, but he don't care. He's like, hey, I was, you are looking good today, man. You know, I don't got a six-pack anymore. It's more of a keg, but it's kind of big and round, but, uh, but you're looking good, man. God's gift to women. Guys, his hair is falling out, and it stopped growing here, but it's growing here and here and back here. He's just full of hair everywhere else instead of here, but he's like, yeah. You know? I don't know what's going on up there. I mean, it's just messed up. We are messed up in the head that that's the reality. But that's, that's just the way it works, and there's all this assessment, all this measuring in our culture. 
Moms feel this. There's such a thing that's happening right now in our culture. It's pretty much mom shaming. Have you seen it? Oh, you're not watching your kid at the playground like you should be. Oh, your kids don't act like they should. There's all this pressure on moms to raise these perfect children. And if you don't, oh, well, I'm not going to say it to your face, but on Instagram, <laughs> all this pressure. Uh, you, your Pinterest board has to be just right. Your home better be this safe and wonderful place where it looks like Chip and Joe showed up and made it. <laughs> Hashtag shiplap. Like it. It's got to be this perfect joint. If it's not, well, you don't measure up to everybody else. Look at all these women and their blogs and their posts and everything that they're, and their, their lives are just perfect. And you, well, and men feel the same thing. Men, you better produce. You better get the job done. You better do it. You better get a promotion. Do you have college figured out for your kids? You get your retirement fund all set up? Are you bringing your family to church and you're the spiritual head of your family? I don't even know if I know how to do this. All this pressure, all this measurement, whether you're a male or a female, all of us, we're constantly undergoing all of this assessment and measurement all the time in our culture. And there's nothing really wrong with a little bit of assessment. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of measurement in our lives. But the problem is, if you don't understand God's perspective about who you are, if you don't understand the, and discover who God really created you to be, what happens is we just start to lose sight of that perspective. We start, we start getting inundated with the world's opinions. You better be the best mom. You better get that retirement thing figured out. We take all these on us instead of the reality of who Jesus wants to be. We start forming our own conclusions about what our identity is. And as a result, I think we find ourselves trapped. We become overly focused on all the wrong things. And we live under this enormous pressure that our lives are getting formed around. And you feel insecure. I feel insecure. I feel inferior to everybody else around me. And that's a bad feeling. Listen, insecurity, it just tears your life apart. Insecurity just rips at you. Insecurity says, well, I should be this, but I'm not. I should be this, but I don't think I ever will be. And actually what insecurity does is insecurity can prevent you from fulfilling God's call on your life. He's got a call, but no, I don't believe it. He's got a call, but I'm not sure I could ever do it. I don't have the skills or the ability. That's just insecurity preventing us. So <laughs> right now you're feeling very encouraged about your life, I'm sure. But what are we supposed to do about this? Okay, yeah, but I have that. I have that in my life. And I'm just telling you here today, I have this in my life. This is something that I've struggled with all through my years of life. I feel insecure. I feel like I don't have enough. Well, there's a story in the Bible that illustrates all of this really well, and it's the story of Moses. Moses, he's one of those big heroes of the faith, but he was riddled with insecurity. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. God is speaking to him and he says, now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I've got a call for you, Moses. I've got a plan. But Moses says to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, just a little bit of backstory on what's happening here. And most of you are probably familiar with it because you saw the prince of Egypt at one point in your life. But Moses, when he was born in Egypt, there's this great threat against the young Hebrew boys. And so Pharaoh, he was nervous that the Israelites might grow to such a number that they would be able to rebel against him and overthrow him. And so he issues this edict that all these young Hebrew boys should be killed. So Moses could have been killed. But Moses' mom, she takes him, 
makes a little basket, puts tar around it, puts him in, and sends him down the Nile River so that hopefully he can live. And he does. And most of you know that Pharaoh's daughter, she's out there bathing, and she sees the basket, and she takes, it, takes him into Pharaoh's household, and he's raised there as her own son. So Moses, he's brought into the king's palace, and he's raised with incredible privilege. But then he kind of meets a bump in the road. He messes up big time because he sees an Egyptian that's beating a Hebrew slave. And so he loses it, he runs over, he kills that Egyptian, buries him in the sand, and then does what pretty much all of us do when things go south, he runs. He just takes off and runs away. But out in the wilderness, Moses has an encounter with God. Out in the wilderness, God appears to Moses in a burning bush, and he essentially says, Moses, stop running, I have a plan for you. Stop running away, I've got a plan for your life. By the way, I love this, that around this time, Moses actually is increased in age, he's probably about 80 years old. And so we, around church life, and there's scriptures we talk about, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But we don't always talk enough about the fact that even though you may be advanced in years, your time is not finished. God still has a plan for you. My good friend, Britt Hancock, he's a missionary to, well, all over. Currently in Guatemala, they're doing a bunch of work. And he always says, there's still air in your lungs. You're still breathing. God's got a plan for you. That's right. That's how he talks. It's awesome. You need to meet him. He's the best. So Moses is older, and, and, and this is the big idea. I just want you to realize, you're never too old. You are never too old. God's got a plan for you. So in verse 10, we already read it. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out. But Moses says to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go do this? Do you see it? Do you see the insecurity? Do you see the measurement? God, I'm measuring myself up, and I'm telling you, I, I'm not the guy. I can't do this. And God says what he always says to us when we feel insecure. It's kind of his go-to line in the scriptures. God says in, in verse 12, and God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. Now, this is a big deal. And honestly, this is all you really need in your life. You need the realization that God is with you, that he's walking with you, that he's close by you. Not for a minute have you ever been forsaken by him. The reality is that the more disconnected you get from God, and that's what we do, where's God? He doesn't care, and so we start to walk away. And the more disconnected we get, the more you lose sight of your true identity and who you really are. The further away you get, the more separated you are from him, the more you're going to fight for this identity. But conversely, the more connected that you get, the closer that you draw, the closer you get to him, the more connected you are, the better you're going to understand your true identity. You start to become anchored. So in verse 12, God says, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. This is what he says to Moses. So even though God is speaking to Moses through a burning bush, Moses, still not convinced, still doesn't get it through his head. Now, I like to think that if I'm standing there listening to a burning bush that's not actually burning, and there's a voice coming out of it, I'm going to say, oh, got it. You know it. Okay, I'm with you. But this is not enough for Moses. He responds to God in verse 13. Moses said to God, well, well, but God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your father sent me. And they ask, what's his name? What am I supposed to tell them? And then God responds to Moses this way. I am who I am. This is who you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God's response to Moses here is so funny. You just go tell all those doubters, I am who I am sent you. You know what this passage is telling you? Greater than the who am I question is this statement from God, I am who I am. Which means that the great I am is greater than any questions regarding your identity that you will ever ask. 
He's greater than all of those. So you'd think, again, this is enough for Moses. There's a burning bush. There's a plan for my life, purpose and mission. God's telling me that he's going to be with me. You'd think this would be enough, but no, it's not. For 22 verses, Moses continues to push back and ask questions. Even though God continues point after point telling him things that should totally convince him that God is going to be on his side and he can move forward in his God-given identity. I don't know how you see this, but I, I look at it and I think, Moses, bro, bro, what's wrong with you? What is going on? Why can't you just believe this? I mean, dude, there's a fiery bush that's not burning up, and there's a voice coming, and, and there's all this stuff that God's saying. What's wrong with you? Are you an idiot? But then I remember how much it takes to convince me of all that God is, of who he says I am, of all that he wants to do in my life, of how much he's actually going to be with me. I take a lot of convincing, too. So my wife, Maria, she has a lot of incredible talents. She's a singer. You, you've, you've, you've seen her here uh, leading worship. You've seen her on Christmas time uh, singing songs and stuff. Just, I know, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Um, she can play the flute, actually. She's a flute player. You didn't know that. She's a flautist. Um, she does, <laughs> she likes flautists. I don't know if she likes flautists. I don't know, but, <laughs> um, she has a lot of great stuff, but she has one talent that really, it just, it, it makes everything pale in comparison. She can potty train like no other. I'm sorry, we're all booked up. We're not taking any appointments right now for potty training, but maybe someday if our schedule clears up. But, but she did an amazing thing with our kids, and each one of them, she read this book called Potty Training in Less Than a Day. And so anybody read this book? You can do it. Potty Training in Less Than a Day. So here's, here's what happens. She, step number one, kick the husband out of the house. She said, you're a distraction. Get out. And so I did. I left. I left the house, and she was there with the kid by herself all day long. And on that day, they're drinking a lot of fluid. They're eating snacks. There's songs. There's books. There's, have you, there's lots of potty songs. Have you heard any of these potty songs? I'm not going to sing them for you right now. But, but, but there's all these songs. There's all this effort that goes into it. It's a whole day for her of just crazy stuff. And so she's filling them with liquids. And then she starts saying, you got to go potty. you got to go potty. you got to go potty. And they're like, I don't know. She's like, oh, let's run. Let's run to the potty. Run to the potty. Run to the potty. And so they run to the potty in terror. Okay? So they, <laughs> they get to the potty, and they sit on the potty, and they sit there. I don't know what I'm doing. And so, okay, well, let's go. And so they go back, and they drink more fluids, and they have more stuff, and they eat more food. And then, oh, you have to go potty? you got to go potty? you got to go potty? Come on, let's go to the potty. Oh, uh, uh, oh let's go to the potty. And they run to the potty. They sit on the potty. Are you, are you going potty? Well, not yet. Okay, so, so they go back and they do it again. Take a lot of drinks. You got to go potty? You got to go. You got to go. Let's go to the potty. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And they run to the potty. They sit on the potty. And then finally they pee on the potty. And she's like, Woo! You did it. Good boy. Good girl. And they celebrate and there's treats and candy and all this fun stuff. Am I getting this close to right? Okay, so, so, so. <laughs> so, so it's just an illustration. It doesn't matter. So. There's all this stress around it, and, and actually, my kids, I'm convinced, she says no, but I'm convinced that for the next year or two, my kids were actually terrified of the potty because of this. So we'd be at the mall, and they'd be like, Daddy, I gotta go potty! And they were like running, and I'm like, oh, where are you going? Get back here, come here! It's kind of messed them up for a little bit, but they'll be paying for that counseling one day. But, um, there's all this work, there's all this effort, and there's all this stuff that goes into potty training. And we have to coax them, and we have to encourage them, and we give them treats, and we sing them ditties, and we try to help them move along, and it's so much work. And honestly, she really did it. In a day, pretty much they were done, weren't they? Pretty much. There are a couple little accents here and there, but they really, it worked for them. Terrified and scarred them, but it worked for them. (laughs) 
It takes all this energy. And those of you that didn't use a book like that, you know, some of you are in it right now. It's like, it's been six months and we're still fighting through it. And I'm so sick of diapers. There's all this effort and energy. And we as parents, we just want the very best for them. We want to help them know that there is another better level of life. There is a maturity that you can attain. There's something better than going to the potty there. There's a better life for you. When it comes to our relationship with God, it's the same way. He's saying there's a better life than the one that you're living. There's a life that I'm calling you to. There's a plan and purpose that I have for you. And it's grander than you know. And you can do things that you didn't know you can do because of me. And I'm calling you to this. But we go, I don't know. And we force him to coax us. We force him to sing us ditties. Well, sing me a song, God. Well, show me. Where's the treats, God? Give me the stuff, God. And we make him coax us and work on us and try to get us there. What if instead of that, we just decided, God, I trust you. I trust who you are. You have so many amazing things for me. What if we were so secure in who we are and in who he is that he just said, listen, I got a plan for you. And we said, yes, sir. I got a great life for you. And we said, I'll go. What if we didn't force him to work and coax? This is what's happening with Moses. Just like we are so many times, Moses just wasn't there yet. So in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I'll help you speak and I'll teach you what to say. But Moses said, oh, Pardon your servant, Lord. Excuse me. Please send somebody else. I can't do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And, on his, and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. God already knew. He already chose Moses. And he's already working on the way that Moses is going to do this. He's on his way to meet you. He'll be glad to see you. He'll speak to the people for you. And it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak, and I will teach you what to do. But take the staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. Moses is still not there. He starts listing off the reasons. I can't. I'm slow in speech and tongue. I'm not eloquent. I can't do it. And God responds with, uh, who gave you your mouth? Who made you? Who made the structure where the words come out? It was me. I did it. And I've got a plan for you. Why? Why then are we just still so insecure about this? I think when we run up against insecurity, there's two ways that we respond to it. The first way is we just kind of say, well, I'll just show, I'm going to show you I'm good enough. I'm going to show you I'll be the best. I will rise to the top. I will win. I will go fight. Win. I will do it. I will crush and destroy the competition. And then that basically what's that, what that leads us to is pride. We're just getting prideful. Insecurity, it leads you to pride, which means sometimes the strongest person in the room is not necessarily the strongest person internally. Oftentimes, it just means that they're so insecure, that's the way they're fighting back. That person at the office that you just, it's really hard to work with, that might be them. And if you're like that, you've maybe noticed moments in your life where that's been true of you. Others, they'll deal with insecurity and say, no, I'm just not good enough. Oh, I'm a lowly worm. I'm nothing, I have nothing, I can do nothing, I'll never be good enough. And your insecurity just leads you to rejection. It leads you to inferiority. And honestly, I'll, just, I'll be honest with you, I, this is the way that I lean. This is how I respond. What happens is insecurity, it actually causes people to start to pull back from you. 
it starts with some kind of rejection that you experience, but then you don't, ha- you don't learn how to get your identity anchored in God and your thoughts become consumed with all this rejection. And pretty soon, that insecurity, it just leads you to the self-fulfilling prophecy. And suddenly, you're out of relationship with people. This is the devil's strategy and his tool to try to get you where he wants you to be. But the incredible thing about God is, is that God, God doesn't just work around our insecurity. God works through them. He doesn't just work around, he works through them. This is what he did with Moses. He didn't just go around and say, well, forget you. He said, Moses, I planned on using you. I'm going to work through your insecurities. I'm going to help you. So no matter how much we keep resisting, no matter how much we're dealing with our own insecurities, God keeps working us through it. And that's what he'll do if you'll let him. So today, before we go, I just want to give you just something practical that maybe can help you on the journey. I want to give you four things real quick that will help you on your journey to live more securely than you're living today. And the first is this, that you don't put your security in things that can't sustain it. We're so good at this. We place our security in something like a job or like finances or like a relationship or a guy or a girl. We, we put our security, we place it squarely in there. If this works, I'm going to be okay. And the problem is none of those things are guaranteed. There's only one that's guaranteed. And that's your relationship with Jesus. That the one thing that you can always rely on is him. Do you know why we feel like we don't measure up in life? It's because we don't. I mean, honestly, we don't measure up in a lot of areas. So it's actually a true feeling. That's why you need Jesus so desperately. As you read about Moses, he's a type and shadow of God's big story. And he's, he's leading us up to the moment where Jesus comes to the earth. And he says, essentially, I know that you feel inadequate. I know that you feel like you don't measure up. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my perfect life. This perfect life, I'm going to give it to you so you can get some things fixed inside of you. You can become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You can be a son. You can be a daughter of the king. So because you don't measure up, I'm going to give you my life to help get some of that stuff corrected inside of you. And that's really the place, the only place where you're going to find the strength to be able to correct all of this that we're talking about today. Like, this is it. It's the solution to all the feelings and emotions of your inadequacy. That's really where you find the place to anchor your identity. Not in what you say about you, not in what other people say about you, but in what Jesus says about you, who he is in your life, and who he says you are. And when you do that, you start to break loose of the enemy's strategy. You start to get free. He can't bring you into the pride and rejection he's trying to get you in, and and that'll destroy your relationships and your emotions. So what you do is you start to realize, you start to realize as you go through this process, you are not your past. You're not your rejection. You're not your mistakes. In the same way, you're not your triumphs. You're not your victories. You're not your weakness. You're not your strength. You're none of those things. You are who God says you are. And Galatians 2.20 starts to be true of you. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This afternoon at 5.30 up in Austin, we're going to baptize a whole bunch of people. And this same thing is going to happen in their lives. Because when you think about it, water baptism really, it's just a declaration of your identity. It's a declaration of who you are. So when I'm water baptized, I no longer identify with what I was. That's not me anymore. Now I identify with Christ. When God looks at me, he sees Jesus. I'm not living out of my past. I'm living out of my faith. I'm not defined by my history. I'm now defined by what Jesus has done for me. 
I'm not, I'm not afraid of my failure. I'm not afraid of my foolish decisions. I'm just secure in my future with Christ. And I'm living my new life in him. This is what's going to happen to around 41 people or so, I think, tonight. And so I want to invite you to come at 5.30. And maybe this is you. Maybe it's your moment. Maybe you haven't been baptized, and now's the moment for you to identify with Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. You can go to onechapel.com and let them know you're coming. What I'm trying to get to is you just need to put your confidence in the risen Jesus, nothing else. Put your confidence in the risen Jesus. You know why? Because he's stable, because he doesn't change, because he's always the same. He is constant. The second thing is you can lean into your weakness to leverage more of God's strength. Now, this is not popular in our culture. In our culture, we say other stuff. We say, hey, hey, you, hey you're, you're pretty weak. You need to fix that. You need to do better. And we say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to read some books. I'm going to study. I'm going to get some help. And I'm going to conquer. I'm going to go fight. Win! I can do it. I can be a man. I'm going to man out. This is what we tell people. You need to suck it up. You need to suck it up and get out there and just do it. But did you know that your weaknesses don't actually have to be a liability in your life? Your weaknesses... They don't have to be a source of insecurity for you. Your weaknesses can actually become a backdrop for God's power. A backdrop for God to move in your life. Your weakness can actually be the place where God shows himself most strong in your life. This is what God was talking about with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is good enough for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. He's saying, so Paul says, therefore, I'm going to boast. I'll boast all the, all the more gladly about my weaknesses. I'll just, yeah, <laughs> I'm terrible at this. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I can be honest about it because in my weakness, Christ's power is made perfect in me. He comes and fills up all the space where I'm weak. And it's made perfect. And it's an amazing thing. That's not how we handle it. We have a weakness. We go, well, I, I need to do some more research. I need to figure out how to do this. I need 10 steps to be able to. I need to get my four steps to conquering life. I, I need to read more. I need to know more. The number one category in bookstores is self-help. This is what we do. In America, we go fix it. We have this inclination. When we find a weakness, we've got to overcompensate. We've got to try to push that thing down and be strong. But the message of Jesus is, I know you're frail. I know that you're inadequate. I know already that you don't measure up. I know you're weak. So why don't you just relax and let me show myself strong in your life? Why don't you just let me show up in your life in a new dimension? So I just want to encourage you today, if you're feeling insecure about your weakness, just lean into God. Be aware of him. Let him show up. Stop trying to fix everything by yourself and let him into that thing and you'll find that you'll be living in a more powerful way. The third thing is, I think you've got to submit all your self-talk and your thoughts to the truth of God's word. Just submit it all. Because this, this is where the battle really happens, isn't it? This is where the insecurity comes from. And it's because you were told growing up, oh, you'll never measure up. You had a dad who said, oh, you, you can't do anything. A dad who always said, you did that wrong. Fix it. Do it better. You had a mom who wasn't nurturing in a way. That you had family members who said this or that about you. And so you have all these recordings playing in your head constantly you can't you won't you won't measure up you won't amount to anything your life is pointless why are you even here what are you even doing all that self-talk and so it starts to manifest itself in the way that you think oh i can't ever do it oh i could never do that oh i could never do what they're doing oh i could never fulfill the call that god has on my life and it's not true romans 12 3 says don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to stop thinking about yourself so much 
but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. We've got to shut down those recordings. The real battle happens up here. This is what Paul is talking about. We need to allow the word of God to give us a right view, a right perspective of who we really are and who God says we are. Do you know, when I was a kid, when I was in high school, we had this class, it was a communications class, and I had to, we all had to do speeches, lots of speeches. You had to do all, these, all this public speaking, and you already know, most people are terrified of public speaking, and I was too. I didn't want to do it. I would be sweating for months before that. I would be a nervous wreck. In the morning of, I could barely function. I was freaking out, and even into my college years, I was so scared to, to get in front of 10 people and give a little five-minute presentation. I was terrified of all of it. It was a nightmare for me. And God came, and he filled up my life, and he says, I have a plan for you. And I said, I can't. And he said, no, you can. My power will fill you up. It'll be made perfect in your weakness. You can do it. And now I've been doing this every week for 20 years in front of just uh, countless numbers of people. It's just, it's the life that he called me to. But God, I can't. Oh, yeah, you can, because I'm going to do it. You can do it too. Why don't you guys come on up? Let's close this out. The last thing that I, I want to encourage you to do, number four in your notes, and this is hard, but focus more on what God's doing in you than what others are saying about you. Focus more on what God is doing in you than what other people are saying about you. Because people say stuff. <laughs> people say stuff at work. People say stuff on Instagram. People say a lot of stuff on Facebook. And they're saying stuff. But it's not that important. Look at Hebrews 11, chapter 24. Here's what the Bible says later in the New Testament about our boy Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now everybody think about this. Moses had some major insecurity issues. Moses made some major mistakes and had some massive and lengthy detours in his life. But our boy Moses is included in Hebrews chapter 11, in this hall of faith, this hall of fame of faith, this great cloud of witnesses, Moses is in it. Why? Because he kept moving forward in this area of insecurity. He didn't allow it to stop him. He didn't allow his fears and worries. He didn't worry about what everybody else was saying about him. He didn't look at the treasures of Egypt and say, oh, I'm just going to rest and relax in all of this instead. He wasn't looking at all the wrong things. What he was do looking, like, doing, the Bible says, is he was looking ahead to the reward of what God had planned for him. He was looking ahead to the reward of the purpose for his life. He was looking ahead to the reward of relationship with God. Listen, everybody. How you answer this question, who am I? It's going to profoundly affect your future. How you answer this question, it's going to, honestly, it'll affect the way that you treat your spouse. It'll affect the way you treat kids. It'll affect the way that you work with coworkers. It'll affect the way that you hang out with your friends. Really, this question, what it does is it affects your legacy. It affects the story that lives on after you. How you answer, who am I, 
is so important. How you answer the who am I question, it's not just about your own insecurity. Really, it's about your legacy. It's about your future. So today, I just want to encourage you to do something. Stop worrying so much. Stop worrying so much about what everybody else out there is thinking. What they're wondering about me. Stop worrying about what the mom says on that blog. Stop worrying about the Facebook comments or the fact that you didn't get as many likes as you thought you would. I know you're more godly than that, but that's me. Stop worrying about all of that stuff. So many times we're just so, we spend so much effort and energy worried about what everybody else is thinking about us. And when you spend that effort and energy and you're worried about what everybody else thinks, I promise you, it'll lead you to make poor decisions, to get the acclaim, the trust from people. That will all fall flat. And you know what the reality is? They're actually not thinking about you anyway. They're thinking about themselves. We're all just running around thinking about ourselves and freaking out about how much we can't. When God says, oh, you can. Not on your own, but if you let me in, you can do anything. You can do it. You can do it. So all of us today, we just need to start being more concerned with what Jesus is thinking. What does he say about us? In fact, I think you just need to learn to pray it. Every day, you just pray it in your prayer time, in the morning, or night, whenever you pray. God, what do you think of me? I know what I think of me, and it's all over the place. I know what my family said about me, and that's hurtful. It's causing me to react in ways that I don't like. God, what do you say about me? And just sit and listen. God, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And let him speak to you. And do you know what he's going to say? You're my son. And I love you. You're my daughter. And I'm just so excited when I see you. What you're doing and how you're living. I, I love you so much. He's not mad at you. He doesn't want to crush you. He's not even disappointed in you. In fact, I heard a pastor that I respect say this. He said, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. That's how much he loves and thinks about you. So much so that he would come to earth himself in the form of his son, and he would die for you. You want to say you don't have value, you don't measure up? God sees enough value in you that he came to the earth and he gave his life for you. You know the purchaser determines the value of the thing purchased. And you were worth everything to him. So why are we running around with all this insecurity? The King of kings and the Lord of lords is your dad. He's the one who loves you. He's the one who's got your back. He's the one who wants to fill you up with his spirit and propel you into the future that he has for you. We got nothing to be scared of. Sure, trouble will come. It's not all going to be perfect, and it'll be hard sometimes. But even in there, just like Heather said this morning, that's where the miracles happen. That's where he's right there with you. You bow your heads, close your eyes. I just want you before him, I just want you to ask him, God, would you start answering the question for who am I? God, who am I? Because I can just about guarantee that the vast majority of us, we don't actually know. 
what we think is not the reality. Now, God, all over this room, would you speak by your Holy Spirit to this group of people, to this family of believers, and would you begin to convince them of the truth that they are beloved sons and daughters? And would you begin to move them forward in relationship with you? Those that have been pushed outside, those that have, because of issues and insecurity and pride and rejection and inferiority, they've, they've retreated from you. Today, we're coming home. We're coming back. Thank you for your kindness that leads us to repentance. We want to say yes to you today. So welcome us home and teach us who we really are. So we can do everything that you've called us to do. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Now, for some of you, this seems like a long shot because the reality is you don't actually have a relationship with him at all. Maybe you've never given your life over to him and said, I'm going to follow Jesus. I want to accept everything he's done for me. Maybe some of you have been on the run from him for a while, even though you believed in him once. I want to tell you that today you can change all of that. Because of our sin, we find ourselves separated from a relationship with God. He is good and perfect and holy, and our sin, it takes us out. Our decisions did that. But Jesus came and he said, I will pay for all those sins. I'll give my life for yours. I'll pay the price, and I will help you get back to God the Father. I will be the bridge that will bring you back. Your sin doesn't have to separate you anymore because I'm going to take all of it on myself. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to conquer it, and then I'm going to come back to life. And that's what he did. And today, all you have to do to receive that incredible free gift, he gave his life to you. You just give your life to him the best way you can. So maybe that's you. I want to help you pray a prayer. I'm just going to help you with the words, that's all. And you'd say something like this, Jesus, I give you my life. I want to be yours. I believe today. I'm choosing to believe that you died on the cross. I'm choosing to believe that you carried my sin. I'm choosing to believe that you paid the price and you rose again victorious. I want all that applied to me today. Please forgive me for my sin. I turn away from the life that I'm living. I change my mind and I change my life and say this to him, the best way I know how, I'm giving you my life today. Help me to begin this new journey with you. And Jesus, across this room, I pray people that are making that decision, that you would give them the grace and the strength to walk it out. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for being here with us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, we want to help. You can find info about groups, teams, and other things happening at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. Have a great week.